Hey there, if you're listening to this and you support us on Patreon, you can hear it via the Patreon page ad-free. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're doing our second installment of five albums that made me. This time we're talking with Dean Wareham of Galaxy 500 and Luna to name a few of his musical projects. Oh, you got it, Greg. Dean is probably best known for his work in those two bands, Galaxy 500 and Luna, but he has also released albums with his wife under the name Dean and Britta, and under his own name, including last year's I Have Nothing to Say to the Mayor of L.A. He was born in New Zealand, lived in Australia, then his family settled in New York City in 1977. I mean, what a time to arrive. Yeah, a good time. Center of the musical universe, uh, and he's a high school student in New York. Oh, yeah, Jim. I mean, it was an unbelievable scene. Uh, Wareham went to prep school and then Harvard, where he met his future Galaxy 500 bandmates, uh, Damon Krakowski and Naomi Yang, who have also appeared on our show. Absolutely. Post-Galaxy 500 guys, as Damon and Naomi. Uh, but Galaxy 500 made three great studio albums and then imploded. Uh, they didn't, there was internal tensions within the band. But those three records, you know, a parallel can be drawn to bands like the Velvet Underground mm -hmm. or Big Star, where they kind of uh, codified a movement before anybody could put a name on it. You know, people later on started calling it slowcore and right. things like that. Uh, but they created this moody, atmospheric vibe with just guitar, bass, and drums. Uh, and it was beautiful, haunting, and, and there was, at the same time, a sort of a depth to it that was more than just this beautiful sound. But there was a sadness, a melancholy, an introspection there. They brought layers and layers of musicality and meaning to what they were doing and influence. You know, a band like Low, for example, right, wouldn't coming exist straight out of that right. scene. So, uh, incredibly influential band, inc incredibly uh, important band. Well, and then the big second act that Wareham had. You know, it's the beginning of the alternative era. Bands that had forged a path in the indie underground or getting signed right. to the major labels. Uh, 1991, uh, Dean Wareham puts together Luna. You know, at various times, Luna included such fellow indie rock superstars as Stan Domeski of the Feelies, Justin Harwood of the Chills. Uh, but in his book and in interviews, you know, Dean says basically his entire musical career, the roots of that sound can all be heard in the first Galaxy 500 single, uh, Tugboat, uh, which I always heard, and many people did. Dean was coy for years about its real meaning. Uh, I always heard it as being about Sterling Morrison, the yeah. great Velvet Underground rhythm guitarist. After making four of the most important albums in rock history, most influential recordings, um, you know, splits uh, the band, Lou Reed becomes Lou Reed, and Sterling is a tugboat captain, <laughs> who uh, really nobody heard from for years until the short-lived Velvet Underground reunion, except he did play on some Luna tracks. Mm -hmm. In 1999, uh, Britta Phillips joined Luna and became a romantic partner with Dean. Uh, after Luna broke up, they started recording as Dean and Britta, doing some soundtrack work, notably for Noah Brumbach's The Squid and The Whale. And eventually, in 2013, they moved out to Los Angeles, which explains the title of his recent solo album. 
You know, Greg, um, a couple of weeks ago, I got to do a wonderful uh, session for the Old Town School of Folk Music here in Chicago with uh, a musician I've been a fan of since the 80s. And uh, we had such a wonderful chat, Dean Wareham and I. And while I've mentioned uh, his uh, duo, Dean and Britta, several times, and we've played Galaxy 500, I think we've played Luna on the show, we've never had Dean Wareham on the show. We were like, hey, this is one of the most enthusiastic music fans, funniest, smartest guys we know. We're fans. We've got to rectify this. So Dean is going to follow in the uh, prestigious footsteps of uh, Amy Mann. We figured let's talk five records that shape me with Dean Wareham. Dean, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you for ha- for having me. I know you, you've only been doing that. You haven't been doing this for long, so you know it's... Yeah, no, only a couple decades. You know? <laughs> <laughs> nor, nor have you been doing it for yeah, that no, long. No, yeah. You know, uh, Dean, of course, was uh, the driving force of Galaxy 500, of Luna. As I mentioned, Dean and Britta, the duo with his wife. Uh, several solo albums, uh, including uh, the one that came out in October, which is really great, uh, about uh, hoping to be able to sell out. Finally, in cash. Oh yes, yes. I say, I say that's okay. Where's that line you joined to sell out? I want to know where that is, so I can join it too. It's yeah. not selling out; it's cashing in. No major six or be diminished. All my rewards are just rewards. And a great memoir, too, in 2009, Black Postcards, where you talk about your love of music, uh, Dean, throughout your life. So we figured you'd be the perfect person to play this. This is like the expanded Desert Island Jukebox, five albums that shaped me. Where are you going to start? Let's go chronologically in the order in which I purchased these albums, shall we? So I'm going to start with um, VU Live 69, the Velvet Underground, Live 1969, whatever it's called. Yes, 1969, Velvet Underground Live. It's had different titles with that incredibly cheesy uh, Girl in the Fishnets uh, from the Waist Down. Yeah, that was the only misstep on that record. 1974, it was posthumously released, uh, so to speak. Uh, The Velvets had broken up. So, Dean, how did you discover this record? You know, I think at at that point, that was the only Velvet Underground record in print. When, so if I would go down to Disco Mat at, at Grand Central Station looking for a Velvet Underground record, maybe Lo- Loaded was in print. Mm. Um, so, but if you wanted to hear live, and any Velvet Underground, it was pretty much Live 69. Um, mm-hmm. Or you could hear Rock and Roll Animal, the, the Lou Reed album, if you wanted to, to get a taste of those songs. But that's a very different thing. A completely um, different animal. But yeah, so this album, half of it is at the Matrix in San Francisco, and and now it's you know all those recordings are available remixed. That's pretty great, true. All the Matrix, but then half of it is from um, some club at the end of Cole Avenue in in uh, Dallas, Texas. And Lou Reed tells a story about it, having gone to see the Cowboys that day. I think but, your Cowboys won today, <laughs> didn't they? Yeah, but it's, just give people a little yeah, chance. Yeah. And we saw your Cowboys today, and they. Never let Philadelphia even have the ball for a minute. You know, it's 42 to 7 back by the half. It was ridiculous. You've probably seen the new, the new Velvet Underground documentary about them. Mm-hmm. If I'm to nitpick that movie, which, I'm, which I will do, it's that the not enough credit is paid to the, uh, the Doug Yule period of, of the band. So after, yeah. after Lou Reed uh, dumps John Cale, 
and, and has sent Sterling Morrison to do it. Um, and they get Doug Yule and they, they turn into a really like fantastic live band. And I, I think that sort of the, the, the cacophony, the, the noise and the drone and the, and you know, maybe some of the experimentation d- departs with kale, but they still, mm-hmm. they turn into this really great live band. And I looked this up actually the, the weekend they're recording at, at the Matrix in San Francisco. The Rolling Stones are, are recording at Madison Square Garden the album that becomes Get Your Yaya's oh, Out. Oh man, yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I like I like that record too. But uh, this live live sixty nine, it just sounds so fantastic. It sounds like you're in the room. Well, it's the real Velvet Lover's choice, Dean. Um, yeah. I put together a book a couple of years ago. I was the editor. I wrote an introductory essay. Mr. Cott contributed. And I, I turned I to some... I wrote about this record. I turned to some <laughs> of my favorite writers, you know, on the Velvets. And you were the first one I called, and you chose this record. Because uh, the rhythms and the, the tightness of that band and the kind of vamping... Uh, on on these uh, songs and expanding them and I, I don't want to say I'm trying to avoid saying jamming you know because they yeah. were never a really jam band yeah. it's not jamming it's yeah. <laughs> rhythmic workouts yes exactly they, exactly yeah that, that that that's what's amazing yeah that long version of uh, what goes on you just mm-hmm. it goes it goes on forever and ever. Doug Yule and Sterling, you know, because Sterling never gets as much credit, and uh, man, just the rhythmic interplay. Uh, no, well, he was not someone with a big ego, and not someone to toot his own horn, I think. But uh, mm-hmm. and he departed the band. That was the other strange thing about the film; it made it seem like Sterling Morrison quits the band before Lou Reed does, but in fact, it's the other way around. Mm. Yeah. Lou quits after those uh, disappointing shows at Max's Kansas City. Mm-hmm. And then Sterling quits when at, when they were, they were going on tour without Lou Reed, and he should goes to the airport with a, with an empty suitcase and says, "You know what? I'm not coming." I was flashing on when you told the disco mat anecdote because I'm living across the river in in Jersey and coming into record shop in Manhattan. You know, there was that period where the only Velvet's music you saw in bins was '69 Live and the record uh, the Velvets made without Lou. Oh, really? That was like ubiquitous for a very uh, long time. Squeeze. Squeeze. Words just won't come Though I tried to write them Found I couldn't recite them I never bought that. I waited till it showed up on Spotify. Oh, they... <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting to me, Dean, you know, I want to get back to Live 69 because you were... If you're talking chronologically, you would have been in your teens when you bought this. Yeah, record, I was. Right? I was. Uh, I think 16 then when I bought it. Mm. Yeah, and I remember I would like play that record and make out with my girlfriend. There was all these sort of romantic songs like Lisa says, and, yeah. uh, "Over You."
I mean, two songs that were not ever, have never been actually on any other Velvet Underground record either. Mm-hmm. And there was uh, early versions of some of the songs that ended up on Loaded, which came out the, the next year. Um, right. Loose Swan songs. So it was interesting to hear those songs as they were being developed by that band. It's a great introduction. The Matrix tapes it fleshes that thing out and, it's, and sounds fantastic because it's remixed from four tracks. But the way this, this album is sequenced, it's just a great listen. Well, and obviously the Velvets, a band that played uh, a big uh, a role in your life, uh, inspirational uh, to Galaxy 500, forwarding uh, really what the Velvets had done. And, uh, you know, shout out to the tugboat captain, Sterling Morris. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. First uh, Galaxy single. So, so where are we going next, Dean? Well, the next one I would have bought would be the Feelies album, uh, uh, Crazy Rhythms. And I remember I didn't buy that at Disco Mad. I bought it somewhere on like West Eighth uh, Street. Yep, yep. That I don't row know what of this... record stores and yeah. head shops and when when New York was New York. And um, the Feelies had just been written up in the Village Voice, and I'm, I'm I kind of I like the photo of them because they kind of look they didn't look like punk rockers; they looked like nerds. They were like mm-hmm. like pleated pants and and V neck sweaters <laughs> and had short hair and like everybody you went to Harvard with. <laughs> it's kind of what they look like. <laughs> well, nice woolen pleated pants. I don't know, it's kind yeah, of vin- yeah, yeah. Vin- from from the vintage store. Not Dockers, but... Uh... The Village Voice had called them the most important band in New York. And uh, Crazy Rhythms is an album that they obsessed over, uh, working with the uh, the sound man they met at CBGB, Mark Abel. But really, they produced it. I mean, the level of attention to detail uh, on that record, sonically and also visually. You know what the uh, back cover is a photo of? Uh, I just have so much trivia in my head about that album. No, Do you, no. It was Bill Million's mom's kitchen tile. Oh, really? <laughs> that little bits and pieces and specks right, that, of color. You know, right. they were obsessed with that. And my favorite Feelys photo from that era shows them sitting at that kitchen table. And they each had these mugs, like clear, round Nescafe coffee mugs. And they gave me one. It was a little map of the world on <laughs> a mug. And I was like, oh, that is so cool. I hope you still have but that. But what was it about that album that, that caught well, you? Well, you know what? I, actually, so I brought it home and I put it on and I was like, this isn't the Felix. This is Elena Lovich. Somehow the wrong record from Stiff Records had made its way. It didn't pack yeah. it. <laughs> oh, wow. So... Uh, <laughs> So I had Mix to go up back the to the store and be like, can you give me the correct record, please? So, yeah. But from the opening seconds of that record, it's the, the Boy with Perpetual Nervousness, which yeah. just fades up really slowly over like 45 seconds. And I was just mm-hmm. hooked immediately. And the claves, the, the, the sound of those echoed claves. It's all about rhythm, and I'm not sure. It seems like even the, the drum parts are probably done like bit by bit, as opposed to someone sitting behind a kit and playing a drum kit. It feels like everything is percussion. The guitars are percussive, yeah. and they're yeah. playing like they're playing a coffee can. They're just. I mean, most most pop or rock records at a certain point you get bored with them. 
Mm-hmm. This is a, like there's nothing new to hear, but there's just it's so it's so layered and so arranged down to the last note. There's a kid I know, but not too well. Doesn't have a lot to say. Well, this boy lives right next door, and he has nothing to say. It is an amazing record. Uh, you know, Anton Fear uh, played drums, and of course, Dave Weckerman, their longtime percussionist. Uh, all that stuff was recorded live. You know, the thing that was amazing is when they were playing, they were double the tempo live. And mm-hmm. the story was that, the you know, Bill and Glenn, Bill Millian and Glenn Mercer, uh, the two guitarists, would sometimes so rev up the tempos that Anton would turn away from the audience and throw up physically behind the drum set that they were so now you of course wind up in luna playing with stanley domeski who took over the drummer's throne from from anton for all the other feelies albums yeah the first time i saw them would have been uh 80 maybe 85 at jonathan swift's in um in cambridge massachusetts mm, mm. and then i saw them at the peppermint lounge they would only play on holidays that was the whole thing that was the rumor <laughs> yeah, that they were like, you know? job. holiday weekends yeah. But yeah, it was Stanley on drums by that point. Said it's time to go, alright. I don't wanna go, I said alright. Never listen to me anyway. Yo, so don't know much to say. Do my me on the TV show, that's alright, I don't watch it anyway. I don't talk much, it gets in my way. Let it get in the way. Do a job, we get things done. Work very hard, we get things done. Time to spare, not now. Can't relax, I got things to do. The big place stays, the little ones fade. It's nice to know it's party life. One of the things that struck me, Dean, when you were talking about the Velvets, because uh, my experience was similar to yours. I, I wanted to find out who the Velvets were, and I bought that record was the only one available, and I was blown away, obviously. And then you have a whole bunch of other records to explore once you discover that one and go back. But, you know, I read about those records. I read about the Velvets record. I read about the Feelies record. It sounds like you had a similar experience where it wasn't so much you heard it heard it you heard about it and then said okay well, this sounds like something i'd buy i don't know i'm guessing yeah that's true i don't know where i would have possibly heard those things it wasn't like today where you can uh hear anything check out anything you want before you go buy it no it's true maybe wnyu radio but that was about it back in those days right yeah, the only way I heard about the Velvets, the first way I heard about them was through, you know, the Lou Reed solo records, and we all had Rock and Roll Animal. So was I in for a surprise when I heard the Velvet Underground 69? Yeah, yeah completely different. like that. You know? I think, yeah, my, my older brother had Rock and Roll Animal, too. He liked that, so... Um, yeah, because the guitarist had played with Alice Cooper, so, yeah. you know... All the metalheads yes. loved yeah. it. Yes, it's an, that's an amazing record, too, but in a very different way. Yeah. Did the Feelies consciously... Uh, their image making of we are consciously not going to pretend to be anybody we are. We are going to not uh, dress up. We, we're, we're nerds from the suburbs of New Jersey, we're, and that's who we are. Did that influence uh, Galaxy 500? Because, it, it, you know, similarly, the three of you uh, with Damon and Naomi uh, as your partners, I mean, there was no uh, pretense or no look or no image making, really, to Galaxy yeah. 500. The well, album covers were beautiful, but, but yeah. you know, when we saw you, you know, you were three guys. Mm. Yeah, well, we tried to dress up. I mean, I would almost argue with Crazy Rhythms that they are dressing up. That they, you know, 
But uh, well, yeah, but no one those guys for four decades. They always look like that. Oh, really? Is that right? Okay. Yeah, that, that's just... really you know on a right. Sunday morning. That's what Glenn looked like. Yeah. Well, I mean, we tried to look nice, but uh, in, in, in photo shoots, we tried to put on a you know shirt with a collar. And actually, that's not even true. We wore, we wore t-shirts. You know what? Mostly through the '90s, as an indie band, you you weren't supposed to. I feel like this goes in kind of waves, but you weren't supposed to dress up in the yeah yeah in the nineties. Yeah. You're supposed to dress down. Yeah, you um, don't at least it, at least at least for for American bands. Yeah, you know, it's 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 always different. Brits are always more fashion conscious. Yeah. So those are Dean Wareham's first two albums that made him. Coming up, we're going to hear about some Brits and a modern lover who also made a big impact on him. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. Today we're talking with Dean Wareham of Galaxy 500, Luna and Dean and Britta, about the five albums that made him. Let's hear what album number three was. Sandinista, the great... Clash triple album. I wanted to be Joe Strummer for a little while. You know, there was a slogan back then: "The only band that matters." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I didn't quite believe that. Other bands mattered too, but um, I saw them on tour right when that album came out. I don't know if you were at one of those shows, Jim's at Bonds. The Bonds, uh, yeah, Bonds was an old men's uh, clothing store that had shut down. Those are and, legendary shows. Yeah, legendary shows. It was amazing. It blew my mind uh, um, in the heart of Times Square. Yeah. So they booked, they announced six shows, and then the, uh, I think I was at the first show, and the, the fire department then shut them down for overselling mm-hmm. the shows. So then they had to play 12 shows to honor all, mm-hmm. the, all the tickets. It's a great political album. It's full of all these political songs, but uh, I saw Grandmaster Flash open for them. I mentioned this in my yeah. book. And, and it turned ugly. It was like they were basically booed off the stage with racist chants and people giving them the finger. And uh, when Joe's drummer came out, he looked, he looked horrified yeah. by that. It's a sprawling mess of, of, of an album. I guess it's a it's a New York album, and you can make the you can make an argument that the Clash at that point were a New York band, just like they, were, you know, they certainly spent a lot of time there. Yeah, um, Cott and I have a fundamental disagreement, Dean. I have never liked Sandinista, despite seeing them at that point, despite being a huge fan, and it just because of the sprawl of it, and and Greg's always gone to bat for it. <laughs> so turn me around. Well, it just seemed, it, it's like my problem with, you know, the Grateful Dead catalog, say. There was just so much of it and so few rewarding moments sprinkled oh, throughout. Yeah. Well, I agree. It, well, they don't, they don't have the songs that the class do. Um, I don't know. I would just go, look, Lose This Skin, which is, um, that's Ellen Foley singing that. Meatloaf's uh, duet partner, yeah. Yeah.
Uh, yeah, obviously there's some filler on it. You've got, you know, a, l- a little children's choir singing um, career opportunities. Yeah, which was much uh, better on the first album. Yes. Said I better take everything they got. Do you want to make tea at the BBC? Do you want to be, do you really want to be a cop? Career opportunities are ones that never knock. Every job they offer used to keep you out the dock. Career opportunities are ones that could say there was filler on exile on main street too that's what i would say it's like it's that's it's kind of like interstitial it's like you know it, it's part of the journey on this record and dean you said you saw you know you saw those bond shows so you know and the grandmaster flash they were hugely influenced by that stuff and this record was bringing all those kind of non-rock influences into into their music so i think they wanted to showcase that yeah and then they were expanding beyond what 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 punk was thought of, I guess, and what was it, what was allowed. I saw them at Palladium too, I saw them earlier, but uh, actually I saw the cover of London Calling is that image of Paul Simonon with a bass guitar, like throwing it on the, and uh, I was at that one too. But. Wow. Yeah. I mean, they were galvanizing live band, no doubt about it. Yes, I go back, I read the, like the New York Times review of that sh- the show at Bonds and uh, he said, like, Joe Stromer can't sing. He's, he's got the range of three blind mice. I'm like, well, that may be true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but so what? Yeah, and bad diction. Yes. Joe was a bit of a mumbler. But, uh, but that was because his teeth, before he got his teeth Except fixed. when he was soft, then he would really, he was like Chuck D. It was kind of like, you know, bullhorn yeah. stuff, you know. About, um, yeah, what, what an inspiring... Uh, human being he was and it's uh, mm-hmm. that was a sad day when he when he left this world at what age there's a fine something. documentary about him too have you seen that yes by julian temple right yes julian temple. Yeah. there's yeah. a lot of love in that film so mm-hmm. i yeah i don't know how it shaped me it's funny because i look back and like yes you won't really hear the clash in any <laughs> in any any of the music i've made but it's sh- no. but it, it but it encouraged the songs just had a few chords in them, and they sort of, that's where I, you know, in Galaxy 500, the, the pre-Galaxy 500 band was Speedy and the Castanets, and we used to do mm-hmm. that, the Clash song, We're a Garage Band. We're a garage band. And we did Police and Thieves, too, so... So it's a band that influenced me to pick up an instrument, let's put it that mm-hmm. way. Well, and I, th- I think the concern for fans and the uh, notion of operating ethically, even if you're on Epic Records and, you know, you're rocking the Casbah and having a big hit at one point, they were still always the clash. You know, yeah. drummer never uh, compromised. I think they, yeah, I think he really suffered for that. Because I think the press were really, especially the English press, were really hard on him and he was just, it's held to a higher standard than anyone else. In, in a way, yeah. in a way, say like, maybe like Spike Lee is sometimes when they ask Spike Lee, well, oh yeah, you're going to donate some of the money to this or that cause? And he's like, what? Would you ask that of Martin Scorsese? Give me a break. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he felt like a crushing weight of, uh, I guess the weight that comes from, from being the only band that matters. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, Dean, you mentioned that you'd seen it before uh, this era. I remember seeing the London Calling Show at the Aragon in, in Chicago. You know, they had so much cred, you know, with that record. It was just like this acclaimed masterpiece, right? London Calling. 
And yeah. I think what struck me about Sandinista was that it was this complete left turn. Like nobody was really expecting them that this record was going to be made by them. And that, that was like, wow. That yeah. really made me pay attention more than anything. It was just so different. I admit the first few times I listened to it, I was like completely like, what the hell? <laughs> you know? And uh, it grew on me to the point where I, I really appreciate it now for what it is, which is, um, you know, to me, it was like a, an amazing statement about what the 80s were going to be, like this kind of mixing and matching of cultures, mm. you know, the way hip-hop did, you know? Um, yeah. They almost presaged that from a rock perspective. So what is is it eighty is it eighty eighty one? But I I feel like that's that's a great period for music and just the the sound of it and I think New Order to what Talking Heads were doing right right then mm-hmm. like yeah. with Remain in Light and the and what the Clash were doing to listen to say uh, LCD Sound System I think mm-hmm. they they actually sound like they come out of that that particular year sometimes anyway. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting how much New York we're talking about. Uh, I think people forget, Greg, you know, uh, Dean went to Harvard, you know, Galaxy Forms in Cambridge, but uh, you were working at the Bops Library at NYU and, and spending more time in New York in that era, really, than uh, than up in New York. Yeah, Orleans. at least half, half my time, yeah, because my, mm-hmm. my girlfriend lived there, yeah. We're going to a New Englander uh, next, Jonathan Richmond. I think a lot of fans of yours would be surprised that we we get to album number four before we talk about Richmond. <laughs> and I've chosen an album that's apparently out of print. I didn't realize it's not, it's not on Spotify. <laughs> What's it, what does out of print even mean these days, though? You know, everything's on the net somewhere. Yes, you'll find it. Rockin' and yeah. Romance. Yeah, somebody's put it up on YouTube for you. What do I love about John? Well, that's, that's another Velvet influence artist, obviously, and he's so good in the in the in the new movie. He is, yeah, yeah. He is, um, he is a very eloquent voice. At that time when we were making the Galaxy Five Hundred records, he's someone we all we were like discovering, like the well. At that point, it was the late Jonathan Richmond records. Now, now I guess those are like early to mid period Jonathan Richmond records, like Back in Your Life and mm-hmm. Modern Lovers Live. And rockin' and romance. Uh, I probably could have picked any of those, but I love him as a as a guitar player. Actually, it's was what I mm. really enjoy. Mm. And he's someone who uh, he's gotten better. And he's such a good player now. But he, when he's playing his guitar solos, that he never strays too far from the melody, which is kind of yeah, kind of like Neil Young in that way. Yeah. So when yeah. we went and saw him, uh, we had done a cover of. Uh, his uh, Don't Let Our Youth Go to Waste. Mm-hmm. On those days And I could drink up everything you have Don't let our youth go to really a rearrangement of it we probably could have taken some songwriting credit but we didn't <laughs> and we went and saw him at um night stage night stage in cambridge he was playing a show and we gave him a copy of our record 
We said, well, well, we based this cover on. He's like, I know where you got it from. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, so Kim Thowley is a very nice man, but he's also a liar. And it, he, he had, <laughs> I guess he had, he had released these demos without Richmond's. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which Richmond's are excellent approval. recordings. But yeah, yes, every, everyone who ever has dealt with Kim Fowley had said that sentence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that I could drink up everything you have. Don't let our youth go to waste. But uh, I first got into the Modern Lovers again in, in high school, maybe from the Sex Pistols, from the great rock and roll swindle, because the Sex Pistols do a cover of Roadrunner. I think that's the yeah. first time I heard about the Modern Lovers. And I was like, what's this? And I got to find this record. And you could not find that record. But I found mm-hmm. a copy in New Zealand where it was still in print. When I, w- I would go back there uh, some summers and I, I managed to get a copy of it there. Well, you know, it's interesting, especially in this mid-period Richmond, um, the vulnerability and the sort of naivete and the 100% hard-on-the-sleeve attitude, you know, especially in the early Galaxy days, but it's a thread that also runs through Dean and Britta and and the new album, I have nothing to say to the mayor of L.A. Um, You know, you're not afraid to uh, sometimes talk to us like a 13-year-old, awkward with life. (laughs) Right, right. In an endearing way, Dean. Yes, thank you. I challenged myself to a duel yesterday. I carried a lock of your hair I insulted myself I counted to twelve We fired three shots in the air It's a gay parade She's above my pay grade I feel like I've taken first prize The other thing about Jonathan Richmond is he'll write a song about a chewing gum wrapper, right? I found a chewing gum wrapper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's where poetry is in, in lyrics, too, is in, is in details like that. Everyday, but, common things. Little right? things. In fact, that's kind of punk too, in, in a way. It's like punk is a celebration of the ugly or the, or the ordinary. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the other thing that was kind of different about this record, I mean, Jonathan always kind of varied the palette a little bit, even though he was essentially Jonathan in every record. You know, he's always like playing a role on Jonathan Richmond as Jonathan Richmond. Um, yes. Is the doo-wop harmonies on this record? Yes. You know, that was kind yeah. of like, whoa, where did that come from? Yeah, well, I wonder where he discovers uh, doo-wop, if he, if he discovers it through the Velvet Underground. Obviously, he was a massive fan. He followed them around. But yeah, the songs of the Baltimore's, the nonsense rhyming. I borrowed, uh, he, he sings somewhere, nimni, nimni, nimni. He'll sing wang-a-dang-a-dang-a-ding-a-dang-dang, ba-boom-ba-boom-ba-doom. Baltimore's, the Baltimore's There's a band that can make me shout The Baltimore's, oh they knock me out I use that Nimni Nimni in a Luna song, Moon Palace, that's from Jonathan Oh yeah, that's where that comes from Nimni 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 were Yeah 
Sometimes it's nice to just inject a little silliness. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Well, yeah. there's a romantic uh, aspect to it. Uh, Lou Reed had that too. That he loved that that love you know, the overly sentimental music. And uh, Jonathan, it, it just it absolutely lavishes his record in that. Yeah. Well, I, he he details like in in the song Down in Bermuda. He he details what what happened to him. Because you you always hear these stories like what if that my first Modern Lovers record had come out when it was supposed to it would have changed the history of rock and roll instead of it sort of got buried, <laughs> but part of the problem was I think that that Jonathan himself refused to promote that record that he right. in fact when he came back to finish the record he didn't even want to sing those songs he's like no I've been to Bermuda and I've like had a revelation that like my old personality is all wrong this like angry dark. <laughs> dark guy is wrong and this is the new sweet me and i'm going to sing songs about insects and and how, yep. how and my po- my positive attitude down in bermuda i realized how stiff i'd been i didn't want to be like that morn again in bermuda And the famous quote was, uh, you know, he didn't want the shows to be uh, loud enough to hurt a baby's ears. <laughs> that was why he unplugged. I don't want to hurt any children who right. might be here, uh, babies know, Cra- in particular. Kramer told me the story of the, the Shockabilly opened for uh, Jonathan Richmond once. And that uh, Jonathan Richmond came over to Eugene Chabot after soundcheck. He's like, no, no, it's too, like too loud. I, I, would, I want... To, you know, I would want my grandmother to be able to listen to this show. <laughs> <laughs> and Chad Ward said, well, my grandmother wouldn't be caught dead listening to your music. That's the yeah, story as yeah. it was told. Whether or not he said that, I don't know. Yeah. Yikes. I easy laugh. I easy cry. Coming up, we'll hear about Dean's final album that made him, and we'll hear from you, the listeners. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. This week, we're talking with Dean Wareham about five albums that made him. Let's hear his final pick. I'm going to go with um, Movement by New Order, the first New Order album. Making Mr. Uh, Cod very happy over there. Oh, really? With the choice. Yeah, I yeah. Love New Order. Uh, Brilliant album. The interesting thing is that they hate it. They don't like this album. Right. I think sometimes you you know as, as, when you're you're the artist, you, part of it is you remember the pain that went into making it. Maybe, and I, it seems like it was mm. an, an unpleasant experience. And at that point, they had soured on Martin Hannett, the producer. But it all seems kind of childish to me to to like gripe about Martin Hannett and what he made them do because. It's, He's brilliant, and he's the, you know, he's the fifth member of that band. He's part of what makes that record sound so good. It's recorded so, so soon after um, Ian Curtis's suicide. Yeah. I think that was the biggest factor in, in making it an unpleasant experience is how do you that move on from that? Yes, over. you're right. Uh, Dean, I got to say, it was an interesting choice, uh, one New Order fan to another, uh, because this record often gets overlooked. Um, a lot of people talk about it as a transition between Joy Division and New Order, what New Order became, and Temptation was kind of like the the signpost song for the, the, new, the new 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 right, Order. Right, for the next band, the, yeah. 
So yeah, this one's this one's closer to Joy Division. It is without Ian's vocals, you know, and and I guess the other thing that's interesting about this record to me is that Bernard they didn't really know who the vocalist was going to be. So Peter Hook and Bernard Sumner were sort of trading off vocals. I think there's Hook actually sings lead on a couple of the songs here. You can tell the vocals sound a little tentative because they're not sure who's going to do this. Yeah, job, I mean, or even if they want to do it. There's video footage of them playing at Hurrah in in uh, in New York because they came over again again like four months after Ian Curtis. And there's video footage, and I don't know which song it is where they take turns singing within the song. Each of them t- takes turns. But yeah, they, <laughs> they, they they have not figured it out at all. Yeah, uh, but I suppose that makes it more vulnerable in some ways. Yeah, more human. So their their live radio performances from around this period are pretty great too. Before they get so heavily into sequencing that it becomes difficult for them to play the songs, the other stuff Mm -hmm. without without a computer. Right. You know the thing about the the early synth stuff was that Sumner invented a lot of those. a lot of those instruments they were kind of like homemade he wasn't buying them off the shelf anywhere he was kind of making stuff you know right gadgets and uh it sounded crude by the standards of most electronic music of that era and that's what i really love about it like the first version of temptation i thought was just amazing for that for that reason yeah i mean i yeah, I think the same was probably true of Kraftwerk. It was difficult for them to play live because what they were doing in the studio was so meticulous yeah. and, and building these sounds, maybe creating them from samples or their own homemade homemade instruments, that when it came to doing them live, it was, it was not possible until uh, about you know 30 years later, and then it became yeah, easier. Until sequencers. Yeah. And then there's nothing to watch. You just hit the button. <laughs> <laughs> Your Apex Twin, you're sitting lounging on a couch pressing, yeah, yeah. pressing a button, right? Uh, it's amazing. Well, that, that is a, a heck of a playlist, uh, Dean. And uh, I have nothing to say to the mayor of LA. It came out in October last year. But, of course, the world was shut down. Um, are you planning on touring now with it? or I have planned a few shows. I've just played San Francisco. I'm playing Los mm. Angeles uh, touring Europe in July. A tour that has been postponed three times, but it's... No. Uh, <laughs> I yeah, think it's, 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 it's finally going to happen. I hope we get through it. Well, uh, get boosted. Get double yes, boosted. I will. And, I'm going uh, to do that before I go. And wear your mask. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dr. DeRogatis. <laughs> well, I'm talking to myself as much as anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. It's been an absolute pleasure, Dean. And, Thank you for uh, having me. We will not go decades again before okay. we have you back. Yeah. Nice to see you again. Yes. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dean. Maybe my dreams were childish dreams. Maybe my songs remain unfinished. Maybe my flights were flights of fancy. I'm not selling out. That wraps up our conversation with the always interesting Dean Wareham. And now we want to hear from you. What five albums would you choose to tell the story of your life? 
leave a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. We got some new technology there. (laughs) Or find a link in our show notes. Now, let's hear some of those messages from you, our listeners. New messages. Hey, this is Kevin from Salt Lake. There's this album called Religion from a band called Howard that I stumbled upon, I think, through Spotify. Blows my mind a little bit. Elements of Radiohead. It seems like a little bit of a buried treasure. I'm not sure if they're an independent band or or what. Um, the song Falling is fun. Check it out. Falling Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Kip from Philadelphia. I love the show and I'm catching up on some recent episodes. I wonder if I can ask a question. I'd love to hear you reflect on why it's not okay for Drake to sample R. Kelly in his recent album. You panned him for that. But it is okay for uh, you all to do a whole episode on how you love Led Zeppelin, uh, even though they did some pretty heinous things in their heyday. And you played some of their music on that episode. It feels dissonant to me, and I would love to hear you reflect on that. Thanks very much. Hey guys, this is John from Evanston, calling about episode 849. Yeah, 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 I know, it's a long time ago, and I just heard it, loved it. It's one of my favorite episodes of all time. I just wanted to name check a couple of bands that you you might think about. Blue Aeroplanes from Bristol, UK, really popular in the late 80s. Song What It Is from Swagger is particularly great. Great poet and vocalist, Gerald Langley. And then Andy White from Ireland or Northern Ireland and some great songs from the same era. Love it. I think uh, Religious Persuasion is probably my favorite chant-like song from the late 80s also. But love the show. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Should have packed my bags, headed off for the coast. Had my time already come to meet the heavenly host. They switched on their halos, adjusted their harps Checked that the blades on the pearly gates were sharp I asked them what they meant about religious bent They said, that's the test I said, that's the test I meant They were given holy orders, I think you'll find I was up against persuasion of their religious Hello, I would like to uh, submit uh, my favorite question songs It's Men at Work, Who Can It Be Now? And I think it's a great song that talks about obsessing about like one particular element in one's life and to become self-reflective in order to, you know, kind of work your way out of of that particular obsession. It's timeless because it talks about uh, mental health coming out of, you know, COVID. I think that that's always a great topic to discuss. Hey, Sound Opinions team, this is Elizabeth calling from Raleigh, North Carolina. 
when I heard the theme of songs that pose questions, two that I adore came to mind, one right after the other. First, there's Who Loves the Sun by The Velvet Underground. Who loves the sun? Who cares that it makes plants grow? Who cares what it does since you broke my heart? Then there is Barrier Reef by The Old 97s. What's so great about the barrier reef? What's so fine about art? What's so good about a good time span? When you're working on a broken, working on a broken, working on a broken man. Both songs question the value of generally adored phenomena to convey heartache and brokenness. Who Loves the Sun sings Doug Yule, Since You Broke My Heart. What's so great about the barrier reef, demands Rhett Miller, when you're working on a broken man. For the Velvet Underground, Who Loves the Sun is unusually tame, simple stuff, musically and lyrically. I'm not even sure I buy the broken heart of the singer. Yule's vocals at once add and remove a layer of irony. But I love the accessibility. No more messages. Thank you to everyone who left us a message. If you want to let us know your opinions, leave a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. Mr. Cott, what have we got on the show next week? Great stuff next week, Jim. Uh, John Doe, one of the co-founders of the great L.A. punk band X, is going to dissect their classic album, Under the Big Black Sun, with us. Yeah! And don't forget to check out our bonus podcast, where this week I added a song by another New Zealander to the Desert Island Jukebox. I would have loved to have been in New Zealand when all that great music was happening. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo. Our social media consultant is Katie Cobb.